Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 23. These are God's words. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed, and so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomit, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody, that the mind of Yahweh might be shown to them. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed, and let all who heard lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country. For I am Yahweh your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as Yahweh commanded Moses. Amen. This ends this reading of Holy Scripture. One of the things that we noticed about the first half of this chapter is uh, that God highlights it to us, the Spirit highlights it to us by placing it uh, in a location that at first seems out of place to us. There's the uh, annual rhythm of the calendar of the nation of Israel in chapter 23, and there's the multi-annual in chapter 25. And last week, in verses 1 through 9, we had furniture placement inside the tabernacle. And we noticed that uh, this was because these called meetings with God uh, are especially represented in the interaction between the lampstand, which shines light, as it were, from the direction of the veil, from behind the veil, onto the table where there are the twelve loaves representing the people of Israel. And so there is that meeting between God and his people, the meeting point, uh, where God shines his uh, face and his favor and blessing and gives his people fellowship. Well, that passage, the first nine verses, seemed um, uh, a little bit oddly placed, and pushed us by virtue of that to uh, understand it better and understand the reason for the location. Uh, this one even more. Um, here is the son of an Israelite woman. His father is an Egyptian. And he goes out, and he has a fight with an Israelite. 
he blasphemes the name of Yahweh, uh, or as it's actually written in verse 11, despite the New King James, and we read it without the italicized words that they supplied, he blasphemed the name. And as the Lord says at the end of verse 16, whoever blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Well, we have had a significant emphasis on the first commandment, the second commandment, and the fourth commandment. The first commandment emphasizing the holiness of the being of God, and this especially by way of the Holy of Holies itself, its unapproachability, um, the... Uh, entire setup uh, of the tabernacle that when God displays uh, or concentrates the display of his glory uh, upon the Ark of the Testimony, uh, it becomes the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. And of course, the second commandment, that we may only come to God in the way that he has prescribed, we must not come, uh, according to the imaginations of men at all. And the fourth commandment, that the Sabbath was a holy convocation, a holy calling uh, together, uh, and that the Sabbath then was also the main component and primary template for uh, all of the meetings with God that God had commanded his people uh, in chapter 23. But here we have a completion then of the ways in which we are to regard God as holy, regarding the holiness of his being, regarding the holiness of the way of approaching him that he has commanded and not adding to it ourselves, regarding the holiness of those times at which he has commanded uh, for his people to assemble to himself. And now the holiness of his name, and especially the name Yahweh. One of the things then that we see is there's not just this this completion of the ways in which we are to regard him as holy, but there are also the effects of being gathered to the holy God. Israel are a holy people. They're a holy people. The Lord has said many times during the Holiness Code, remember from chapter 17 to chapter 21, uh, you shall be holy for I am holy. And not only are the people holy, but even the camp is holy. The execution must take place outside the camp. The camp as a whole is holy, and this is going to continue. Uh, notice that he's giving them instructions uh, that last, and are especially for when he brings them into the land. In verse 16, All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born, in the land. So we see in this passage that they are a holy people in a holy place, uh, and therefore they must give regard for uh, and to the holy name, and they must treat their neighbors and their and their neighbors' property um, with regard for the holy God whose name has been put upon them. First, then, the holy people. And there's a question at the beginning of the passage. Is this son a holy person? Is he consecrated um, the way the rest of the people are because his father is not an Israelite? Remember back in Exodus 12, there was 
procedure given in verses 46 to 48. If someone wanted to partake of the holy meal and participate uh, in the Passover, they could be taken into another household, an Israelite household, not as uh, one purchased uh, by an Israelite, but as one circumcised into the household. And by circumcision, they, uh, they could uh, come out of their former nationality and into uh, not only whatever nationality, but particular tribe and particular house uh, of the household into which they were circumcised. Uh, if that had been the case for this uh, Egyptian who is the father of the man in question, he would be able to have uh, some description like you have of his wife at the end of verse 11, uh, the household uh, to which he had belonged and the tribe to which he had belonged. Um, you don't have that for him. He's still an Egyptian. Uh, the implication is he's still uncircumcised. And yet, the son has access to the judicial system of Israel, not as a stranger, although strangers did to some extent, but through his mother, Shalemeth. What was his dad's name? We don't know. But his mother, being a daughter of Israel, having consecrated covenantal uh, status, he has access to the judicial system of Israel uh, through his mom, Shalemeth the household of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. Uh, so the Lord uh, has already, by Leviticus 24, established that in his visible church, which hasn't even left Sinai yet, uh, in his visible church, the child of a believing or a, uh, a believing mother or a mother with covenant membership, uh, even if his father is not a member, uh, that child is considered a member of the church. Uh, when Paul, by the Holy Spirit, tells us that again in 1 Corinthians 7.14, he is not introducing a new doctrine. Uh, he is, however, confirming that that which was true under Moses continue, continues to be true under Jesus, uh, which is that the household is a fundamental unit of the congregation, and that a child uh, of even just one believing parent is considered as holy as if both parents had been uh, believers and had been members of the church. And so as far as the children are concerned, First Corinthians 7.14, not only is a child holy, but the husband is considered holy, not so much for the husband's sake, he's not a member of the church, but for the uh, the status of the child is not less than if his father had been holy and had been a member. Well, holiness is a great privilege, but it's also a great responsibility. If the Lord has put his name upon us, we must carry that name properly. And if we are going to have his name on our lips, we must carry that name on our lips properly. That's actually the verb that's used in the third commandment. Um, that we are not to carry the name of Yahweh in vain. And it's related to the penalty uh, that is pronounced in, in the passage, uh, that he is to 
carry his sin at the end of verse 15. Whoever curses his God shall carry his sin. And so there is this uh, this sense, there's this dynamic in the passage that really comes through with the literal verbs of how we bear, how we carry the holiness of having been set apart to God. It's a glorious privilege to be part of his visible church, uh, where the church is despised and church membership is despised and people hop from one to another and the vast majority of the churches have no sense of being in covenant with God. And, uh, in the age that we live in, uh, this is something that could easily escape us, and we need to be corrected on that by Holy Scripture. It is a high privilege to be a member of the visible church, and it carries with it uh, responsibilities. Of course, we must not blaspheme the name of God if we're his creature at all, uh, let alone his image bearers let alone the members of his church. Now, this holiness does not apply only to members, but to the people corporately. Once they have someone among them who has blasphemed the name, it's not just the individual who has been defiled, the congregation has been defiled. And until they deal with him according to how the Lord says to, the congregation is in sin before God. This is one of the reasons why church discipline is so important. Because the unrepentant sinner in the church, or the scandalous sinner in the church, uh, defiles not only themselves, but the congregation of which they are a part. So we really ought, oughtn't we, have, if anyone blasphemes the name of God at all, they should at least receive the censure of admonition. There should be public acknowledgement of the man's sin or the woman's sin before God, and of the congregation's defilement uh, by having had that sin among them uh, and a reverent and solemn uh, admission of that before God as, as a congregation and admonition to, to the person who had done it that they would do it no more, rejoicing in the forgiveness of Christ and his blood which consecrates us. I mean, if we did that every time someone misused the Lord's name, I suspect the rate at which people use, misuse the Lord's name would significantly decrease. And how much would increase then the holiness uh, in conduct of the congregation as we bear the Lord's name upon ourselves and upon our lips. And then, of course, any unrepentant sin cannot be tolerated, not just because that person proves themselves to be what we call a gospel hypocrite, a false professor, falsely making a professor, profession of faith, but because having that in the church defiles the church. And so you have 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 as well, but especially 1 Corinthians 5. And the church, knowing that they are going to be called together uh, for the feast of the Lord, particularly the Lord's Supper now, uh, must uh, expel the leaven of sin from among them. Now they go to do this, and uh, they are instructed to do it by those who heard uh, leaning their hands on his head. They have this leaning ceremony where they identify with him. <coughs> and then the whole congregation uh, is to stone him. This is more than just an execution. I suspect that uh, by, the time, uh, uh, by the time you're a very small fraction of the congregation in, 
the uh, the execution component has taken place. Uh, but notice that it's uh, all the congregation, verse 14, and all the congregation, verse 16. Um, not only him who is born in the land when they come into the land, um, but also the stranger, verse 16. This is a congregational exercise, excommunication. This exposes to us, I think, uh, or helps us understand maybe a better way of saying it, uh, that passage in the first 11 verses of John 8, where Jesus is, where is he? He's in the temple, not outside the camp. He's in the temple, and he has people assembled to him, and he's sitting down and preaching to them. And uh, those who supposedly were such holy people come in, no regard for the holiness of the place, the holiness of the temple, no regard for the holiness of the assembly, no regard for the holiness of the word. And they bring a woman who is freshly caught in adultery, and they challenge Jesus about her there. Well, certainly they are not caring about the holiness of God's name, or the holiness of God's place, or the holiness of God's worship. And so uh, we do not know what the Lord wrote in the ground except that writing with his finger certainly uh, identifies him with uh, Yahweh on Sinai, and perhaps he was writing the moral law, perhaps uh, he was writing that it should be done outside the camp. Who knows? They had sinned even in the way they brought her to him. So if they had not sinned before in their entire life, and they just had defiled the temple by bringing an adulteress into the temple, uh, certainly they would not qualify for his challenge. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. No, when these people perform the leaning ceremony in Leviticus 24, they're not saying they are without sin. They're identifying themselves as sinners. Identifying themselves then with the one who has sinned and as those who need um, the forgiveness of God. This, of course, uh, is a great testimony to the man. Uh, who knows, perhaps the Lord brought him to repentance and faith by that ceremony. Uh, and perhaps he did by others uh, as well, uh, if and when this procedure was later followed. We also have then the holy place. Note that the one of the primary parts of the instruction, what to do him, what to do with him is, to take him outside the camp, verse 14, so that when the instruction is followed in verse 23, the emphasis is they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him to death with stones. Uh, now, of course, the great place where the holiness is concentrated is in the Holy of Holies. But we have in this chapter this radiating, if you will, as the radius uh, increases, the uh, intensity of the holiness dimin diminishes, uh, but you have a boundary uh, of holiness for the camp as a whole. The camp that has the Holy of Holies in it uh, must be one with a higher standard of holiness. And so you have the Holy of Holies with the testimony, and you have the veil of the testimony, and then you have the lampstand, and then you have the table with the showbread, and where the lampstand and the table are is called the holy place. And the tabernacle precinct is especially a holy place, for instance, for 
the the purposes of determining where Aaron and his sons may eat the showbread. We had that in the verse immediately preceding this passage. But the camp as a whole, then, the people as a whole, uh, are to consider themselves consecrated unto God in that place as consecrated unto God. Now, the place that is consecrated unto God is uh, the third heaven, where the Lord Jesus has taken his seat. But uh, believers uh, are to be considered and uh, treated as holy. We've already um, covered the holiness of the name and the holiness of God and putting together uh, the third commandment and uh, connection with the first and the second and the fourth. But we're reminded by the holiness of the congregation and the holiness of the camp that it is the Lord himself that makes us holy. It's not just that he has said that we are holy, but that he's joined us to himself. He's put his name upon us. And if we are truly part of his congregation, and we enter into the holy assemblies and participate uh, in the worship, uh, particularly now in Christ, we enter by faith, don't we? Uh, the holy of holies in glory, week by week. We come in God's holy way, at God's holy time, to the true and living God himself. Now this is something we don't see with our eyes, so it's difficult for us to grasp. In fact, there are many who think that if they uh, paint up the worship room, that they'll really um, increase the worshipfulness. I mean, that's a great way of showing the ignorance, uh, showing one's ignorance of the reality of the holiness, of entering heaven by faith. But if we are the people who do this week by week, then our lives should reflect it. And our lives should reflect it not only in how we keep the first table of the law, uh, although it should, worshiping only the way he he says, using his name only with, uh, with uh, reverence, remembering the Lord's day and keeping it holy. But our lives should reflect it in how we keep the second table of the law, remembering that man is made in the image of God, and so his life is to be valued uh, above all other life. And we have that. Uh, in this passage, in verses 17 to 21 in particular, if you kill a man, he shall be put to death. Verse 17, verse 21, whoever kills a man shall be put to death. Uh, and also remembering that uh, animals are not men. Whoever kills an animal, verse 18, shall make it good, animal for animal. Whoever kills an animal shall restore it, verse 21. And so the uniqueness of man made in the image of God. It is God's image that makes murder a capital crime. But notice also that animals are considered property. The The idea of making it good animal for animal or restoring it uh, only makes sense in the case of uh, animals being owned by others. And so here we have the Eighth Commandment, and you shall not steal. Why? Because the holy God is the one who is assigned to each of his image bearers what belongs to them. And it is before God that those uh, in verse 14 uh, who are witnesses of what has been done uh, conduct the leaning ceremony. So you have the ninth commandment. 
the great reason for not bearing false witness isn't just because lying destabilizes society. It is because it is before God before whom we bear witness. It is before God first and foremost uh, before whom we speak. Uh, and so these uh, these penalties, even the the graded disfigurement uh, penalty in verse uh, verse twenty, uh, recognizes that men are made in the image of God, uh, and we must not uh, attack or even mar uh, that image that is in them. So, because God has put His name upon us, and especially in the church. We are to treat our neighbors as holy, made in his image, and redeemed unto himself, and their property as holy to them, meaning that God is the one who has assigned it to them, and we mustn't steal. And even our property, then, the way we treat it changes, doesn't it? If our property is entrusted to us by God, then we take good care of it, right, Sophia? If we don't take care of what we have, that too is stealing, because it's not thinking of everything in terms of how it relates to God. And that ultimately is uh, is the application uh, of verses 10 through 23 uh, in its relation to the first part of 24 and Leviticus as a whole, is that we are to think of everyone and everything, interact with everyone and everything in terms of of our relation to God, and of their relation to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have made us members of your visible church, each one of us, and that you have called us holy and saint, and that you have given us this high privilege that carries with it a high responsibility. And so we pray for the help of your Spirit, applying Christ to us by faith, so that by the grace of Christ, we may walk in holiness. Especially, O oh Lord, help us in the way that we treat your holy name. For we ask it in your holy name, even the name Jesus. Amen.